0: Please join me in welcoming out Danny Deal and Justin Blau.
1: Hello, everyone. How's everyone doing? Awesome. Awesome. I like to hear that. So, we are here to talk about remixing music ownership with Justin Blau. Justin is a CEO and the co-founder of Royal, and a world-renowned musician and producer, where he's known as Blow. His music career started small at college fraternity parties and he quickly rose to fame, performing at sold out shows around the world and amassing over one billion music streams. An early crypto adopter, Justin has been an open advocate for building the investable layer of music on blockchain since 2017. He has seen great success experimenting with tokenizing his own music to date he has sold over 20 million in primary sales from his nft drops in 2021 he co-founded royal to empower artists to share ownership of their music with fans by broadening access to music ownership royal is tackling the music industry's decades-old value chain while maintaining ownership and control so far royal has partnered with artists ranging from big names like nas Diplo and the Chainsmokers to emerging artists like K-pop group Secret Number, Madison, Ryan Ward, and Verite. Over 11,000 people have invested more than $2 million in music rights on Royal, and collectors have earned over $140,000 in music royalties. That's quite the bio.
0: (laughs) (laughs) She did a great job introducing me. We've been friends for a very long time, so this is going to be a fun one.
1: That's true. So before we get into what you're doing now and why you're on stage at this moment, I think we should dig a little bit into Justin history.
0: Sure. Let's do it.
1: Let's do it. So let's talk about going back to the very beginning. How did you get your start in music?
0: I guess it was 2010, 2011, when we were kind of in the blog era of, of music distribution. Spotify had barely begun to take off. And most college kids were getting their music from blogs like This Song Is Sick or Hype Machine or Good Music All Day, at least in the United States, right? And, and in that time, there was this weird moment where you could be completely independent, upload your music to YouTube and SoundCloud. There was no threshold algorithm stopping the distribution on Facebook. So if you liked, you know, in my case, if you liked my Facebook page, you were seeing everything that I ever posted, whether it was good or bad. And it was an early time of being able to establish yourself in a digital way as an artist, whereas you had previously needed a label for distribution of your physical CDs at the front of a record store, right? Those, those times were over um, since the MySpace and Napster era into the Facebook and SoundCloud era. And that's really how I built my career while I was, while I was just in college. And through, through YouTube, Word of Mouth, Facebook, SoundCloud, using these new digital tools for the first time to build an audience on the internet.
1: I grew up in that same time, the blog era, and it did feel very freeing in a lot of the ways that you're describing. But also, perhaps, what were some of the challenges that you faced as an emerging artist during that time?
0: I think back then, the pressure is similar to now in that there's some sort of credibility associated with signing a deal, right? And and I don't think that that's disappeared. In, In many ways, I think a lot of artists still need a lot of the services that record labels provide, whether that's linking a singer up with many producers or writers or other collaborators in their, in their art, creative directors, et cetera. Um, but the challenge back then was, was really establishing credibility as an independent artist, and I think that's still the challenge today. Is How do you get people to accept you as a contributing member of the music community when you've done it all on your own? And I think that it's improving over time, certainly way better today than it was 10 years ago, So we have a lot of room to grow on that front.
1: What are some of the things that you've seen fundamentally change accessibility for artists over time since you entered during that Bloghouse era? What are some of the milestones that we've reached where you've seen big inflection points happen for artists that are coming up?
0: Absolutely, I I think the two greatest ones and kind of similar to stuff we've already been speaking about. Number one, the barrier to entry for creation has consistently been getting lower and lower and lower over the years. And of course, Danny, you know this well at BandLab. Being able to have a music studio on your laptop changed everything for a lot of people. Um, So many of the artists that we know and love today started that way, whereas in the past, the upfront cost of paying for a studio session, for renting a microphone for 10 grand if you wanted the best sound, you know, all these different variables, engineering costs, um, album artwork costs, design costs, costume costs, these were things that, you know, People needed a third-party um, financier to build a career from. And once you know, the internet began to take over the creative space, um, you know, that barrier became lower and lower and lower. And I think that, was, that, that gave rise to so many of the musicians that we know and love today that um, exploded with or without a record label, um, some of those being Chance the Rapper or Russ. Um, you know, and, and the internet has sort of paved the way for that path for a musician that previously didn't exist. So I would say low barrier to entry for the actual creative tools mm. is is a big one, uh-huh. um, and then the distribution side, right? Like being able to post something on TikTok today that could get 100 million views if it sounds good enough uh-huh. um, is is such a miraculous thing. It's a powerful thing. It's a scary thing. I think it has its benefits and its pitfalls. But um, before that, you know, you needed to get on the radio, and that was your only option. So you know, the tools that we have as musicians today, thanks to technology, have have been enormously helpful in growing.
1: Uh-huh how have these technologies impacted you personally as a musician, specifically talking to different uh, social media platforms that have come to rise over the past few years, uh, looking at how do you reach your audience, how do you even define your audience with the tools that we have now?
0: So I I guess this is one of the fun places where I get to be uh, super pro- distributed ledger technology, crypto, blockchain, all the buzzwords that we use all the time. Um, as musicians and creators at large, we've never controlled our audience today. And we still don't today at large. That is primarily because we build audiences on these third parties that rehypothecate our data for ad revenue, which is fine, because we sort of needed those third parties to help us get our name out there. Um, that can change today, but in reality, you know, I've kind of seen throughout my career multiple shifts in moving for forcing my hand to move my audience to different platforms as one platform became less popular and as another grew in popularity and so the example of this i think is i built my audience on facebook and soundcloud neither of those are the primary places that people consume music today um, and and so when you force a creator to move that audience that they don't even actually own it's difficult to let a core loyal member group of your fans know when new things are happening and so you kind of have this dilemma for artists that have been around for a little while like myself and for me my career is 12 years long now so it's not like the longest in the world but it's enough where there are people from the beginning that didn't even know you came out with something new recently right and that's when you really begin to see the importance of controlling that audience that you know I've always believed you know crypto can unlock in many ways.
1: And speaking of, you were a very early innovator in the NFT world. This is a broad question, but how have you seen this space evolve and change over time?
0: At the time that I was experimenting with it, it didn't feel like it was anything, really. It just just this idea of a unique identifier of, of a data point on a blockchain. like That was fascinating in, in, in the sense that, oh my God, you can authenticate this thing in a way that doesn't require a central party. Wow, that's crazy. Um, this could apply to tickets. This could apply to loyalty membership passes, music, anything really. And that was six years ago. Um, for me, I, I sort of discovered Bitcoin in 2014 on spring break with the Winklevoss twins. This is a real story. Um, I was I was opening for um, Avicii, who God rest his soul, you know, was big a big inspiration for me in in Mexico, and I met the Winklevoss twins there, and you know. I was just chatting with them about how oh I studied finance in college and I'm also a musician and they were like you should you should learn about this Bitcoin thing and this is 2014 and that's when I started getting really excited about this idea of banking the unbanked and the power, you know, something very relevant outside of this panel, you know, everything that's going on in the world with the banking system today was something that was fascinating to me back then as a young creator who was earning decent money touring without having the flexibility of moving it around from Bank of America so easily without someone with high enough authorization at a bank branch to send a wire. I mean, I experienced these things as a younger adult. And so discovering Bitcoin was, was really the first step for me. And the second step was, in the rise, during the rise of Ethereum in 2016, 2017, this idea of being able to know all of these transactions that are completely transparent, is something that in the music industry, broadly, barely, transparency is not our strength. <laughs> so so you know, when Ethereum sort of rose to, to popularity, I started just thinking really deeply about how I could leverage the technology to make changes. Um, NFTs were one avenue to do that. But um, in 2017, we ran some NFT experiments at a music festival. You could scan a QR code. You could claim a badge that proved that you were at the festival that we threw. We did all these things. And it sort of worked back then. Like People really did get it, um, but they didn't know they were NFTs. They didn't know what they were doing. They were just scanning a QR code. They got a badge that was limited. It was one of 50, and they felt special about it. And that's really all it was back then. Um, But a lot of people even within the crypto community weren't even the most keen on NFTs. It took a while for both the crypto community, let alone the mainstream, to catch up.
1: Well, talking about the other side, bringing it back to music for a second before we start to connect all of the pieces, how have things like the onset of streaming and social media changed the landscape of music?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, we've seen such such an inflection point, I would say, in the rise of streaming because streaming sort of became the centerpiece of every artist's career. I mean, even for talent buying on the live music side, right? A lot of musicians, you know, and we can talk a little bit more about this later, the myths of ownership of music, you know, whether artists actually get paid a- enough or not. And we, we can get into that later. But, you know, talent buyers started looking at stream counts to book artists in certain cities. Right. And so this idea of having a public data set for how popular an artist's song was totally changed everything. And, and streaming introduced that principle, especially Spotify. Um, Apple Music to this day still doesn't display, I believe, streams publicly. So it was an interesting choice for Spotify to do that. And I think, you know, even musicians are constantly comparing themselves to other people who have more or less streams. And it sort of took the focus away from the quality of the music and, and the, pushed it a little bit more toward what are the masses going to love the most. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still think we're experiencing that today, especially with the rise of TikTok. I don't know if it's a bad or good thing. I, I don't have an opinion on that, but... um,
1: This train of thought is reminding me of one of your favorite phrases, availability cascade.
0: (laughs) Yeah, this availability cascade paper came out of UChicago recently that I've been obsessed with and I've been using the phrase pretty often. I don't know if we need to go into the depths of that, but um, if you're curious in looking up what availability cascades are, it's quite a fascinating principle for understanding human behavior.
1: You can't leave the audience hanging like that. Someone better ask that question at the end. So even though the music industry has undergone several tectonic shifts over the years, I think it's pretty fair to say that certain parts of the industry have remained practically unchanged for the better part of 40 years. Can we talk about some of those things that have been static?
0: Yes. I think some of it's legal, some of it's infrastructural, but the core things that haven't changed is um, source of funds. When you go to start a business, you're either using your own capital from bootstrapping a business or you're raising capital from private equity venture, real estate, whatever whatever business endeavor you're, you're engaging in, there, there's a source of capital. For an artist, it's been a record label. And what the record label does that is a very good thing is it sort of de-risks the artist in the sense that an artist that wants to pursue their art, they have to quit their day job. They have to put their heart, their mind, everything into it. And to an extent, a label provides that for those artists, and and has provided that for those artists, the let's call it financial safety net of what if maybe my art fails, and every artist goes through that in their head, hundred um, percent. For me, it was dropping out, dropping out of school. Um, you know, my third year in. The only reason why it happened and why I could convince my parents to do it is because I was making decent decent money touring. But if I wasn't, you know, there's no way they would <laughs> they would have let me pull that off. So you know, for a lot of artists, that's the, the, the source of financing is is a big is a big thing that hasn't changed mm-hmm. over the years. Streaming hasn't changed that. Um,
1: yeah, not only the source of financing, but the payouts and the lack of transparency.
0: And that is the next piece, exactly. <laughs> the flow of funds is the second piece that hasn't changed, even in a world of streaming. Um, the 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 nature of the way IP rights have been structured around music is not really up to date with modern tech. In that you have the master side and the writer share, the publishing side. You have sync licensing. You have mechanical royalties. You have performance royalties that are different in every country. You have neighboring rights. So you have all these different variables that, as a musician, when you're learning about like the source of your income mm-hmm. and where it comes from, you're like, why? Why is this so complicated? Mm-hmm. It's, and can't we all agree to make it more simple and and I, I'm not the guy to figure that figure that part of the equation out but 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 I do think it should be more simple and that is something that hasn't hasn't changed and I think that a, a large part of it both the financing side and the flow of funds side mm-hmm. is primarily legal and right re- and regulatory um, the laws that exist today have been changing and, and you know this because as a member of the recording academy you know great lobbies for updating politicians on how to think about this stuff but the laws haven't changed too much they really haven't
1: and you touched on a third thing which has not changed, which is metadata and all of the attributions surrounding a song to make sure that everything is paid out to the right person.
0: And there are still disputes that we find, you know, somebody just finds a million dollars lying around that wasn't claimed. I mean, it happens every every other week yeah. um, for large artists and small artists that might have had... You know, a song that they wrote that they released, and then some larger artist used a sample or, or a phrase or covered it and probably owes some publishing income. I mean, this is the traceability of, of ownership of any side of a song um, is dated.
1: Yes. Do we have any musicians in the room? Oh, quite a, quite a few. Keep your hand up if you're positive that you're registered with all the places you need to be to collect your money. We have one hand. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that that demonstrates uh, not only that it's a broken system, but that it does need to be updated. And um, that's where companies like Royal come in. (laughs) We hope so. (laughs) So what are some of the issues that are facing up-and-coming musicians, but also more established artists? Because I think a lot of people think that the established artists have it easy.
0: Yeah, I think, I think there's, you know, it's interesting to categorize artists into, I like to think of three categories, right? You have somebody who is striving to achieve success or has achieved small success and wants to scale that success on the, on the side end. Then you have people like me who's, I'm kind of in the middle, right? I've gone on a tour, you know, I've, I've made this my life. I, I, I've earned a living making music, which I'm very grateful for. And I, w- I want to continue to do that into the future, um, even while being a CEO, which is my full-time job. I, I barely make music these days, but I try on the weekend sometimes. Um, and then you have these ginormous artists who are actually, in many ways, the most disenfranchised because they're the ones creating the most data and not capturing any of it. Mm. And so when you take an artist like Drake or like Taylor Swift, you look at you know all the stories that we hear about you know, Ticketmaster, issues with the Taylor Swift tour, and you know, buying up catalogs of artists without artists even having the opportunity to bid on them themselves, right? Like the larger artists are actually experiencing the most like deadweight loss economically um, in that they've created immense value and they don't even know how to capture it. They also might not care, right? They might have enough money and they're happy and they just want to make art. And they let other people take advantage, and, and you know what? It's whether it's taking advantage or not. I don't know. In some cases, a lot of people probably help those artists succeed, um, but the large artists definitely face a lot of challenges as well. So, in those three categories, the toughest thing for a small artist is what path do I choose? Mm-hmm. There are more paths today than there ever have been. Right. Um, you know, you have services like TuneCore and DistroKid mm-hmm. that do relatively solid accounting if you're the sole member or sole owner of a copyright of a song. Um, But then, you you know, the flip side of that is you might not get any services on the editorial playlisting side, on the the marketing side, distribution side. Maybe you need mastering services, mixing services, whatever it might be. So, you know, a lot of these tools have been developed over the past decade on the tech side for small artists. Um, But, you know, what we think about on the Royal side is something a bit different. It's less on the creative tool side and more on the fan participation side. And I don't I don't know the order that we're going in here. I seem to we, we talked about it a little bit before, but I don't want to go out of order. So if I'm if I'm skipping ahead too far, let me know.
1: Hey, this is a natural organic conversation. <laughs> we are gonna go where it goes. <laughs> but since you have touched upon Royal, let's go straight into it. Broadly, can you tell me what your vision is for Royal and why you founded the company?
0: Absolutely. So I think there's there's two two main problems that exist across all types of artists all genres of all kinds that is the artist not being able to capture the data of the people who consume their music or go to their performances um for me a billion streams later a million tickets later um i still and and i still have to send a selfie video to spotify at the end of the year who then sends it to the top one percent of my listeners but i don't know who those people are i never see them and there's certain data privacy laws you know that are involved there but it would be really cool if I knew who the top 1% of my listeners were. Um, I'm sure they'd want to talk to me, and I'd probably want to talk to them, right? But, but that's not even possible um, today. So the, the, the control of the data that creators create, I think, is is one very, very fundamental core issue that exists, not, not even just within music, but I, I would say all creators, right? It's, it's a huge issue. Um, the second is a little bit more nuanced, and, and the thing that got me excited about combining the principles of crypto An economic incentive alignment that exists within, like, even the earliest Bitcoin ecosystem to the token ecosystem that exists today is this idea that, you know, the people who make an artist or a song popular have no economic upside in the thing that they most contribute to making successful. It's a pretty simple principle, right? If you're a shareholder in a company, whether that's Tesla or Amazon or whatever it might be. Um, you're probably going to talk about it to someone in your life who may or may not elect to use that product or to buy a Tesla because of the interest that you've expressed mm-hmm. in that thing. So being invested in something, not even financially, you can even invest with your time in a lot of ways, um, is something that's always been fascinating to me, especially when people, fans, invest so much time and effort in the musicians that they love. They tell their friends about it, which helps the musician but they never get to participate in the success. So the journey for a fan as an artist becomes more popular actually degrades, right? If you were early at a Halsey concert and I have have one friend of mine, her name is Chloe, who was like at this Halsey concert at, at the Troubadour in LA before Halsey blew up. And like now Halsey tickets are more expensive. There's no way that she could really prove that she was there outside of the iPhone photos, which even back then, you know, barely, you know, was, was, was a thing. I should say, you know, 12 years ago, not necessarily eight years ago, but, Proving that you were there and proving that you were supportive of an artist early on is something that artists are probably interested in knowing Mm -hmm. of their fans and something that fans should maybe benefit from economically, if they could, Mm -hmm. if they could. So the principle behind Royal is, is really simple. It's how do you actually align incentives between creators and the people who consume their creations? Something that hasn't existed in the past. There hasn't been an opportunity for a fan... Or for a listener, or for even a believer, like you can believe in a musician and maybe not even love their music. There's lots of musicians that I think are like blowing up right now that I would bet on, mm-hmm. but I can't do that today. Yeah. So that's the fascination that I've always had, and like, how does how does how does cryptography and distributed ledger technology and blockchains in general unlock that that possibility? That's been an obsession of mine for the past seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, Royal is only two years old.
1: Before we get any deeper. I'd like to pull back a little bit and have you just give a TLDR of what Royal is and what you do. I'm going to assume these fine folks in the room are here because they're already familiar with Blau and with Royal. But for the sake of the exercise, could you just tell me what it is that Royal does and how it works?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's some, some of the Royal teams up in the front row. Um, give, give the Royal team a quick round of applause right now. They're working real hard. Um, Thank you, guys. So at Royal, the vision is really simple, is how do we create a way for fans to participate in the economic success of artists that they believe in? And today, what that means is you can invest in songs. You can invest in individual songs. You can invest in albums. There have been artists that have given away ownership in songs. And as you know, when you're a rights holder, that entitles you to royalties. So the way that we we think about this is, Imagine you have, um, you know, if you're a musician in the room and you've, you've gone through the legal agreements of negotiating master side, publishing side, et cetera, imagine every fan can be a side artist at a small scale in a, in a song, a royalty participant. Um, why is this interesting? Because if enough people own a song and they share it with their friends and they talk about it and they use it in TikTok videos, um, now they're actually increasing their own value if they're owners in that record. And the biggest misconception in the music business is that... Music doesn't make money because it does. Um, it's 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 something that's so pervasive in the media. Artists don't get paid. True, mm-hmm. but the why is the thing that's never answered. It's because artists, whether they elect to or whether their management influences them otherwise, um, very rarely maintain the ownership in their rights for a number of reasons. Whether it's signing a label deal or it's you know wanting the credibility of being associated with a certain label or with another artist who might run a label who signs you, who brings you under their wing and helps you succeed. Um, in 2015, my my father, who's, who's a real estate guy, was looking at this record deal that I had in front of me after I, I had a pretty big dance hit song in 2014 um, that's almost 10 years old now, which is crazy. It was a song that broke my career. And I gave away 80% of the ownership in that song, in this, in this single deal. I got 20 grand for 80% of the ownership. This song has generated millions of dollars since then. I've barely seen the 200 or whatever it might be. Um, but I get ownership back cause at the time people weren't doing perpetuity deals. This is a little bit before that, before the streaming era <laughs> and my dad, you know, that song sort of blew up my career and I was making all this touring income from playing festivals and stuff that like the music income was, it was one song it didn't didn't matter relative to the rest of the picture. When I got this deal in front of me, it was a $100,000 deal for 10 songs, 10 grand a song. The label was going to take 80% of the ownership, and I was going to get 20% of the ownership. And I was like, oh, it's a reputable label without naming the name. They are a reputable label. They've done some pretty great work. I'm still friends with the owner of the label, Um, and I still have a very close relationship with them. But my father was looking at this deal, and he was like, Justin, what value do you think they're adding that you're not adding with the music itself? Like, what do you really think they're going to do differently than you? Uh, marketing, radio promotion, uh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. You could probably like hire those people. You have the money from touring to go find all the people that are doing that at the record label, and you hire them. You either pull them out of the label, you do this, you do that. And i was like, Dad, you're kind of crazy, but like I sort of get what you're saying. And at that point, I, I didn't sign this deal. I elected to go independent. And at the time, um, there weren't that many options. Mm-hmm. So even going independent in 2015, I was still giving up 20% of the ownership. To a service called AWOL, which is, you know, at the time was a great service, um, and this one record, is it love that I released, you know, we had no context of marketing, promotion, radio, anything. I did exactly as my dad suggested. We hired radio promoters. We filmed a music video for five grand. We did all these things, and it worked. And today, that song has also generated close to a million dollars. Wow. Um, so the biggest misconception is that um, artists don't make money. They do if they maintain their rights. Um, But why would they maintain their rights when they don't know if the music is going to succeed or not? Mm -hmm. I think that's the biggest fear that every artist has. Is like, if I do this on my own, like, damn, this label that's got all these people that are working there doing marketing, promotion, radio, like, they're going to ensure my success. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of people find out later that they don't.
1: Right. So. So it sounds like not only are you offering additional benefits to the artist's but you've got a system that also incentivizes the fans, which is something that currently doesn't really exist in the traditional label system.
0: Exactly. I think I think that's the real unlock in, in tokens and everything that you guys have heard about. And, you know, NFTs have sort of had this weird jargony buzz thing going on in the media. But to make it really simple, all it is is a piece of data on a distributed ledger that verifies... Authenticity of something with a unique code instead of um, two like kind things, which would make them fungible. Um, So, I mean, that's the that's the very simple version, but the oversimplified technical identification of what an NFT is. But really, like you can apply it to literally anything. Um, You can apply that that concept to anything. And what got me excited is, you know, if you can if you can incentivize a group of people and, and we've sort of seen this behavior in visual art. We haven't seen it, you know. At Royal, we've had a couple of really big successes, which are awesome. But in visual art, we've seen this crazy, these crazy communities explode from just with just ten thousand members and ten thousand unique pieces of digital art. Like this whole board ape thing is 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 quite powerful. We, we've heard all different opinions about it, but you got ten thousand people that own these board apes, and they come together in ways that are like absolutely unbelievable. Whether it's playing a digital game or doing a live event in the real world. And what's unique about these collections of NFTs is that all the community members are economically aligned in spreading the brand that they're members of. Mm-hmm. So wh- why can't that be that should be true of every creator, right? Like if you're a fan of a creator, why not participate? Right. And I think this extends way, way beyond music. And I give I like to give this example all the time. Mr. Beast is, is a perfect example of like if you could own a piece of a Mr. Beast video, I mean those videos generate real, real income, as we all know how much more likely are you to share that with your friends? Mm-hmm. Probably a lot more likely.
1: It's the difference between audience versus community.
0: Absolutely. And artists have very limited tools today to control their audience, let alone build community outside of an existing 2D world, whether that's TikTok, Spotify, Facebook, Instagram, right? Like It's so difficult even when you do have a large TikTok following how do you engage that audience to go do anything outside of TikTok? You film a video of yourself selling some e-commerce product or something, right? Like the monetization mechanism is still lacking mm-hmm. in the, in the, and I hate saying the jargon phrase, but in the web two world, right? Like I think this is what's so powerful about tokens. And I, and I don't like using the phrase web three cause I don't even really know what that means, but tokens are just ways to align people economically. And that, that can unlock so many things. It starts with a song at Royal, an individual song or an album. In the case of the Chainsmokers, the Chainsmokers actually gave away one percent of the ownership in in one of their in their latest album. Now that's not going to pay that much money between five thousand people. Let's be real; it might be like two bucks. But it's the idea that you own a piece of the Chainsmokers album that's really powerful, mm-hmm. and that emotional value is something that private equity and labels aren't right. thinking about right. when they're buying the music.
1: Mm-hmm. Especially since I think we've gotten to a point within music where narrow casting has become so much more powerful. Everything is personalized. Everything is delivered to you as an individual as opposed to you tapping into something that is broadcast to the world.
0: Absolutely. And, and I think the, the, we could talk about narrow casting for, for, for a very long time. But yes, I mean, I mean, the, the world is sort of designed to lock you into your existing preference and then feed you that preference over and over and over again. Um, and, and I think that's something that we've sort of lost that people still have a have a hunger for a little bit. Like people love discovering new music, they do. Um, whether it's through a homogenizing algorithm or not, when they find something new that they like, there is a certain level of excitement mm-hmm. that is expressed. And I, I think my like at Royal, we're building a lot of different things, whether it be artist tools or financial tools, thinking about music rights, all these different products. But in the end, like if I could if I could see a future that I'm excited about, and I and I. I actually had this conversation with Oliver Schuster, who runs Apple Music, early on when we started the company. I want there to be a world where you walk into a coffee shop, you hear a song, and we've all had this moment where you're in a coffee shop and you hear a song, you You take out your Shazam app, you Shazam it. But then why can't I put $10 into that with Apple Pay if I like it that much? Maybe I see that it only has like 60,000 Shazams instead of like, you know, Tame Impala. Some Tame Impala songs have like crazy Shazam numbers, right? Um, maybe I'm discovering something that no one's even really heard before. And I want to bet on that. That behavior already exists everywhere else in our world, whether it's in debt markets, stock markets, sports betting, right? Why can't it exist in the creative world? Um, and I think that's what's been, you know, my obsession for a very long time.
1: So Royal has launched very recently. It's a very young company. It officially launched in early 2022.
0: Um, uh, we start so we started working on it in May of 21. Mm. We, we announced fundraising in November of 21 and we launched the product in January of 22.
1: So it is very young, just yes. about a year and a half. How have artists in that short time utilized the platform?
0: It's been, it's been awesome. Um, I would be remiss to say, I would, I would be silly to say, you know, the, because Royal was so closely associated with, the entire nft cycle um you know things have changed drastically since we launched but we have so many success stories that we're really proud of whether that's you know nas launching two songs with us on on launch day crashing the website you know hundreds of thousands of people signing up um evo in the audience and a couple of other engineers here um were actually just trying to keep the site afloat because there was there was so much interest in this idea of owning music it, it was a wild wild time and so Artists like Nas, Diplo, Chainsmokers on the on the larger side. Um, Diplo, in his case, he sold 25% of Grammy-nominated song "Don't Forget My Love" um, and generated $400,000 from selling 25% of that song. No label would offer that deal, even to Diplo as a single. That's um, an insane deal that the public gave Diplo. And then on the flip side of that, the public has actually earned, you know, upwards of a 20% return on that investment. that's not you know the same thing as investing in a small artist and watching them explode which is something that we're really excited about as well Um, but those are kind of the the best cases of things that we've done i guess it's been about a year since we've launched a little over a year since we've launched so those are some of the bigger more familiar things some of the smaller things that we get excited about are k-pop groups like secret number um, launching with us just last week a small k-pop group selling out of a drop and, and generating real income on their music and another artist that's actually live right now you know if you guys are interested in just going to royal.io and see royal.io and seeing what artists we have madison ryan ward incredible singer this is her second song that she's done with us um first one being so successful that she wanted to come back and do it again and her her streaming growth since the first drop that she did with us um related to us or not she's probably just growing in popularity um she's grown by about four hundred thousand monthly listeners since the first thing she did with us so, you know, coming back a second time and offering those fans ownership in a new record is really, really special. And I guess what I believe is the same way we all own or we think about owning um, stocks, real estate assets, treasury bills. We have this portfolio of things that we put our money in. I strongly believe we will have a portfolio of music that we own in the future. Our, our playlist is, is what we own, is what we actually are invested in. And, and I think it will take us many, many years to get there. But at Royal, we're sort of building the infrastructure today, anticipating that future.
1: You mentioned being really excited about smaller artists. Is this a pivot that you're thinking about now that you've...
0: I think we want to service everyone, to really. I really do. I think, I think the service that we want to provide to everyone is this idea of, of audience mm-hmm. control. So even whether you're Diplo or whether you're me or whether you're a small artist, knowing who mm-hmm. really believes in you, if you're, in, if you're investing in an artist, they really believe in you. And controlling that data on chain is like is incredibly powerful for artists of all sizes. The reason why I'm excited about small artists, you know, using big artists is a great way to prove that there's interest in 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 this concept, right? At at a large scale, right? If if Nas or the Chainsmokers or Diplo come along and there are people that are excited about it, great. That means we're on we're on track for something that makes sense. Um, there's a great video of a, a girl on TikTok going up to Diplo and showing him the token that she owns on her phone saying, hey, I own this song. And he's like, whoa, that's crazy You know, in, in, this, in this TikTok video. And it's, it's, it's experiences like that that help us get the word out about w- what we're trying to achieve. But where I think we see outsized excitement about what we're building at Royal is with small artists. Because if you owned a piece of Ocean Eyes by Billie Eilish and, and Justin Lubliner, who's a good friend of mine who signed Billie back in the day, um, he's also an investor in, in, in our company. If you could own a piece of that song back in the day, Uh, You know, that's a thousand X song that that that's a song that's that's foundational for one of the biggest artists in the world today. Mm -hmm. And it's only a matter of time before something like that happens. And when that happens, people begin to understand a little bit better what it means to be invested in in music. A 30 percent return is nice for an investor and it's Diplo and it's cool. Right. But when when somebody wins the lottery, Mm -hmm. you know, we, and this going back to availability cascades for a second, um, the the, be, the best example of, of an availability cascade that I heard recently is the Pro Bowl winner buying this $25 million mansion in Hollywood Hills. I don't know if you guys have follow any architectural anything on Instagram, but it's all over Instagram and TikTok, is the Pro Bowl lottery winner buying this $25 million home. Now, there are big real estate transactions that happen every day in the $25 million price range. Why are people so excited about this? Because it's relatable. Mm-hmm because he's the Pro Bowl winner, because that could have happened to anyone. And you, if you won the Pro Bowl, could also own that home. And so the idea of an availability cascade is something that is believably true and right in front of you, tends to create a social cascade where more people are inclined to share that fact, belief, anything. And so it's just basically a a fancy way of explaining virality, and it goes into deep human behavioral science. Um, But when we think about that in the context of royal. Right? If, if you are a user of Royal and you're investing actively, you're putting $50 into this song, $100 into this song, maybe you claim this song for free, maybe you get ownership for free, and that's something that I've experimented with for, for the Blau project is we've given out a lot of ownership for free mm-hmm. um, to see what happens, and it's worked, it's worked pretty well. Um, let's say you're collecting music and then one of these artists explodes, now you're going to tell all your friends about Royal because you made ten grand on owning, you know, 100 bucks maybe turned into 10 grand, Mm -hmm. right? And it's those types of experiences that labels see the benefit of, right? Like labels are betting on tons of artists, one explodes, Mm -hmm. and they win big. Humans at large, fans should have the ability to come together and do that too. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just going to take a little bit of time for people to really understand the economic benefit of it. Um, But that is a core mission at Royalist, is to prove that out. And, And I really think that we're making big headway there.
1: Y'all we did it. We tricked Justin into defining <laughs> what the availability cascade is. <laughs> so, getting a little bit more practical. How do you even determine what the price is for a song or an album?
0: That is a wonderful question. So, lots of data, lots of comps would exist. You know, it's more difficult to price a new song than it is a song that has, you know, 1 to 3 year history of streaming. There's a natural curve. Of decay of popularity. Um, that's sort of changing in the era of TikTok where with TikTok now I mean TikTok can blow up a song that's five years old and you know it's unpredictable. you can't really model that out in a, in a pricing model but the way we price songs today is very similar to the way um, private equity prices songs. Um, we like to give artists as, as fair of a multiple as possible but we also um, in the future will give the artists the ability to choose right like we'll have suggestions. Of what we think is fair based on the market value, but at the end of the day, an artist can decide how they want to price their music. That is not the case today on Royal, but very soon it will be.
1: Have there been any surprises since the company was launched? Anything that took you sideways you weren't anticipating? Um,
0: I, I would say I, I think the launch itself was the most surprising in that you know we just didn't expect there to be as much interest at the time in. Investing in a an NaSong. Awesome. song, and it was it was so and it was so insane that these these things traded up, you know, from fifty dollars to or seventy five dollars to thousands of dollars in a, in a low period of time, and that's mostly speculation, right? That's that's kind of the characteristic of crypto that everybody likes to talk about in the media is like, oh my God, this thing exploded and busted, and like, what's really happening there is you get a core group of believers that somehow outlast the speculative bubble, and they're the ones who are still building the technology for the next time. it happens again and this is sort of what we saw with with the internet it's the same it's the same sort of pattern and if you you actually look at there's this graph that's gone viral in crypto communities of like internet adoption and crypto wallet adoption and over over this a similar time horizon of years and it's actually like really close to being identical of like when things explode when they kind of calm down and now the group of core believers is just bigger than it was last time but by a multitude of you know five ten x so in terms of what's happened at Royal that's like been really surprising, I think the launch was a really big surprise. Mm-hmm. I think everything that we're doing now, I think we expect, we, we, we want to see it succeed. I, I will be really surprised. I, I will have more opportunities to be surprised when anyone can come to Royal and launch a song. That is not possible today. It will be very soon. Um, when you, any artist can just come and, and elect to finance a song through Royal, I think that that's when we'll see a lot of fun surprises.
1: Mm-hmm. What value have you seen as an artist from a system of shared ownership with your fans?
0: That is a great question. So I guess for me, I've only actually done two songs on Royal so far. Um, And and that's primarily because I haven't had the chance to work on new music. Um, But in the earlier days of selling NFTs more broadly, the thing that I benefited from the most was the community element, right? Like having a group of people who own my tokens I know who those people are. They're active on, you know, Discord, and what, you know, and Discord is its own universe, right? You can you can prove that you own a token on Discord and get access to, you know, different channels and communities. But having people who are a core community of folks who are invested in me and my belief system about music is has been the most powerful thing. Um, a lot of those people have become Royal power users. I mean, there are some people on on Royal who own every single drop like our correct me if i'm wrong i think craig owns over 180 tokens um we don't even have 180 songs yet i think he just owns duplicates of different tiers on different tokens um so there are a lot of people who like just really believe in this principle um one of our users cooch pooch um invested in a royce to 5.9 record and got he had a diamond token and got a 237 dollars royalty payout and he's like oh my god this is working and i think that's the thing that we're training people on right now is like people are still sort of baffled like where does the money come from like does music actually make money because i read in the media that artists don't get paid right and so it's like we have a big learning curve to overcome there and as people use the product they begin to realize oh well this is actually working mm-hmm. um in fact one of our users is, is now our head of payments at royal um demo uh, derek yeah so he, he was a user and then we, we actually hired him to run payments on the platform right so it's really just about convincing people to believe believe in, in the ideas and the way that i've leveraged it of course is you know I, I try to I try to pitch this vision of the future as to as many people as possible and get people to come and try royal and see if they like it see if they enjoy the the process of actually investing in a song mm-hmm.
1: do you feel like your relationship to your fans has fundamentally changed at all since you've started participating in this process of shared ownership?
0: I, you know I, I think I, I would answer differently if I was still like actively Blau, you know, like, I'm, I'm not as active touring, I'm not as active making music, I'm more so working with the team every day. So it's kind of hard to see some of that. But there have been amazing moments when I have done a couple of tour dates here and there where there are members of the crowd who own songs of mine, right. And like, when I play that song, they're like, they have this moment where like, I actually own this song. It's like such a crazy thing, right. And so I think if I was touring more, I would experience that more. Um, but but I do think that like, individually, we We took a lot of time to build some of the we actually just launched this new new tech where if you own any of my existing tokens, like from the past, some of which were not royalty bearing they were just collectibles, you actually get ownership in this new remix of mine for free. We actually just launched that um yesterday, and that's where I'm starting to see like a lot of real excitement. you know people that were long term believers that are actually getting rewarded for being long term believers and so that close community is something that I'm really excited about but i'm I'm even more excited about taking it to the next level. With some of these other services, so you know, one thing that we're excited about is imagine you can connect your Spotify, and if you are in a top listenership of an artist, you get ownership for free and something. But you, you, Spotify is not going to lie to us, as you know, the API is going to tell us, hey, um, this artist really was in your top one percent, so that should entitle you to X, Y, Z, right? And so that's the kind of stuff that I'm particularly excited about for myself and for other artists is like this ability to reward those who are loyal to you.
1: I do want to save some time at the end for questions. I forgot to say at the beginning of the panel that folks should submit their questions through the South by Southwest app, but we still have five minutes. It so looks like they're doing it, though. So. Oh, people are. Yeah. Okay, great. So you're, you're ahead of the curve. Speaking of ahead of the curve, I do want to close out with what are your thoughts about the future of the music industry? I know that that is a phrase that is bandied about quite a bit, but... In Justin's mind, what is the utopia?
0: I mean, yeah. So we were talking about this uh, in the hour that we had before this chat, and Danny and I have been friends for for a very long time. So I think there's like there's a lot of things going on, right? There's this there's this number of songs being released daily that's ever increasing, mm-hmm. and will eventually approach one million. I think we're at a hundred thousand now or something. Um, then you have this whole AI movement of you know, I, contrary to popular belief, I, I tend to think that AI is gonna be really good at making good music. It's just a matter of time. It's not really that good yet. It's inevitably going to get there at some point. At which point, you know, how important is the human connection between the artist and the fan? And I think I think that's inevitably always going to exist in some way, shape, or form. And that's where I think, you know, the future of the music business in, in the grandiose way, you know, to me, the thing I'm most excited about is is this idea of fan economic participation, um, or even just public, right? Because there, are, like, there is literally no way for the public to own creativity outside of owning a piece of physical art, and that's such an amazing comparison. Because if the if if you buy a piece of physical art and that artist becomes more popular, your art goes up in value. Like th- that should apply to everything in cre- in the creative world, and I think that's an inevitability. So that that on the one hand is I think something that's really powerful that people will begin to take advantage of in music, both musicians and fans, as the tools exist for them, too. Um, but then I think what, what you guys do at BandLab, I think, is incredibly powerful as well, You know, giving anyone the ability to create and creating a whole new demographic of both casual and professional creators because the barrier to entry of creating has continuously gotten lower. And that's a good thing because a lot of people still can't afford the lap, the laptop and the software and, you know, for me even, I mean, I, I stole all my software back in the day. I pay for it all now. I promise I have the receipts. UAD and Waves bought it all, spent the money. But when I was younger, absolutely not. I stole all my software. Um, you know, and so, like, these barriers are changing. And, and I think more creativity is overall good. Mm-hmm. The thing that I'm most scared of is maybe different than what people would expect. But I, I sort of have this, like, deep-seated fear of, like, the homogenization of sound where like at some point algorithms are just going to feed us what we want and that's going to maybe kill the incentive for an underground artist to try to innovate um i think there will always be an underground in fact like dance music is having its underground moment right now and i think that's really cool um but i that is that is a fear a real fear is like this homogenization piece where you know at some point our preferences are just data being fed into a machine um so yeah i think the future of music is interesting i think that there are more tools today than there ever have been before, for musicians to take advantage of. There are also more people competing for attention than ever before. So those are two sides of the same coin. Um, but I still think the most important thing is is the relationship of the artist to the person who's listening to their music. And I think that's something that you know we we take for granted sometimes with with this world of algorithms and AI music creation tools and stuff like that. So um, you know that's what we hope to unlock at Royal.
1: Thank you so much, Justin. That was amazing. We are going to take some audience questions now. All right, from Kate. Where are you, Kate, in the audience? Hi. Kate is asking, so many parallels with the challenges for authors and traditional versus indie publishing. How could the royal model be adapted to other creative fields?
0: That's awesome. That's a great question. So the infrastructure that we're building at royal definitely doesn't just apply to music like the core technology could apply to any type of creativity that that includes a consistent income stream right so naturally we think about youtube as like the the closest next comparison but but you know movies and, and netflix and film and tv are actually a bit different in the way that royalties are paid out and so more complicated but youtube and actually novels books publications are are the other thing that i think are really powerful there's some legal frameworks there that make it more difficult um, but if a work is already published and you want exposure to the royalties of an already published work, um, that's something that I think we could easily um, you know, mess with and, and play with as a company. I think it's still young for us to do that today. I think we want to conquer music first. It's, it's a natural vertical for us. But, but it's totally possible. I mean, if you're a believer in an author, you should totally have exposure to all the things that that author creates or even a particular piece of work that you love that you're going to tell your friends. I mean, how often, it's the same kind of principle, right? When you hear a song you love, you tell your friends. How often are we getting book recommendations from friends versus just reading a review on the internet? No, we, we, we kind of want that human um, recommendation about a novel because it's a time commitment or a nonfiction you know, book. It's a time commitment that we're making and we want a friend to tell us that it's worth the time commitment. A song is a lot shorter. So totally agree that that it can go there And and the infrastructure that we've built totally applies. It's just a question of building you know, a system for that. Um, but it's a great question and something I'm really excited about in the future.
1: The next question is from Zaki. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Are they still? Hi. So this touches on something that I'm particularly passionate about. We just
0: talked about this, yeah.
1: <laughs> Are they, What thoughts do you have on content protection without big labels? Should there be digital rights management or tokens rights management? For these music tokens,
0: yes, um, <laughs> one thousand um, percent. I'm sure some of the royal team here that has been working on this project is excited to hear this question. There are a lot of people that have tried to represent rights in new ways. Today, it's mostly like it's mostly paper. Um, I actually recently had a uh, an internal audit where we went through all of my agreements and side artist agreements and sent them to multiple accounting firms. And did I mean it's just it's just messy, right? Um, the the dream is you know it's impossible to get the entire music industry to adopt a standard because there's just too many players right so to say hey let's move all these music rights onto the blockchain that was a concept that a lot of people actually pitched uh, spotify actually bought my friend's company media chain jesse walden built this technology like seven years ago um but it was just too early right and and the, the switching costs of, of doing that stuff are are quite high but in a perfect world. At least you can control it a little bit more for new music. So if you funnel new music through through a, a distribution system that represents those rights on chain, um, then at least for new music you have a system set up for for like fair transparency and distribution. It's something that we're really excited about at the company that we're actively working on. Um, but it's definitely not something we can like pitch everybody to just accept right away. It's like it's something that has that has to be piloted the value has to be proven and then the legacy actors sort of have to see the value before they get involved and that's been the pattern in music for streaming you know even especially like oh my god now we're actually making money because people are paying to access everything they're paying a lower price to access everything after they stop buying cds for ten dollars now they get as many cds as they want for ten dollars a month oh wow more money's coming into us as rights holders now labels are going to play ball right so we sort of need like anybody who's building technology in music does need to think about how the existing rights holders will feel. And if you prove value there, um, really, really cool things can happen.
1: So the next question is from Owen. Hi. Hi, right in front. Owen wants to know, have you thought of more ways to help small artists launch? It appears the economics might not add up when artists don't have the hype factor behind them.
0: That is a very, very good question because that is exactly true. When you're a small artist, and you're starting off. Um, the comps of your music performance are low, so the actual valuation model of valuing a song is like maybe the song is worth two hundred bucks, fifteen hundred bucks, maybe, right? And so that's hundred percent right. Like the community aspect and the emotional value of investing in a song sometimes has to mean a lot more than the royalties generated by the song itself. And we've seen that, you know, in a couple of cases at Royal so far. But some of the new artists that we're launching that are on the smaller side, um, creating the community tools and what we like to call it royal proximity, where the owners of these assets feel really close to the artist and that's where they're getting the value from. I think that's extremely important for, for new starting artists that don't have as high of a, of a comp for music performance. So yes, absolutely.
1: The next question is from Chris. Chris, anywhere? In the back? In the back? Okay, I'm just blinded by the lights. Uh, Chris works for a startup where a part of the platform is helping artists create music through AI. We're hitting on everything we talked about. All today. of it. What are your thoughts on rights, ownership and licensing when it comes to AI?
0: So I think everyone's scared shitless about this topic and for, for good reasons. Um, I don't know if you guys, have, my favorite AI music video so far is this guy using chat GPT and he says, make, make, Drake lyrics about rapping about beans have you guys seen this video no just look up like Drake beans AI video on on Google and so a a guy in like 10 minutes chat GPT Drake song rap about beans and then uses a, a voice simulator and a beat maker to actually have him sing the lyrics that ChatGPT generated. And it sounds so real. It's insane. It's like not something that you'd want to actively listen to, but the fact that it gets 80% of the way there is absolutely miraculous. So now you're running into, well, like, voice modeling. like are they like are There's no legal infrastructure for some of this stuff. There's interpretations of it. And every lawyer will say, I think this... But there's divide, right? Because these statutes are old. They didn't exist when AI existed the way it does. Or I should say... I think a better way to describe um, the music creation process as it applies to AI and licensing, I, I kind of hate the term artificial intelligence. It's really machine learning, it, like the ability to, to use data to project new ideas into the future. Um, you know, and so I think this stuff is 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 very unclear. I don't have an answer. I'm certainly not an expert, um, but I can say it's going to create a lot of divide among among industry professionals because. I mean, sampling is sampling. And so Drake's voice is Drake's voice. And if you can recreate it with an algorithm, does Drake need to give you permission to use it? I mean, maybe. I don't know. But it's who, who knows, right? I mean, today, the answer is yes. But that gets infinitely regressive as time goes on. Because then you can make some alteration that isn't exactly Drake, right? And you can add this and that and this parameter and that parameter. And all of a sudden, you have something that isn't Drake at all. But it was based on Drake, mm-hmm. Uh, well, isn't everything based on something else? The concept of intertextuality exists in creativity that we can't escape, right? And so that's where that's where humans come in the mix, where we determine whether there are actual damages from some type of uh, association or AI generative output. So, yeah, I mean, I think this stuff is really fascinating. I'm by no means an expert on it, though. By no means an expert. Uh,
1: could you talk, let's see. Oh, we've got a couple of anonymous questions. <clears throat> Maybe they'll raise their hand. Um This question is, what's the process of working with artists who are signed? How do royalty payouts go to the label versus fans who own the music through Royal?
0: Great. That's a great question. So fun for us, the flow of funds changes depending on every single deal structure that exists for every artist. And we manually go through it all today and make it work. Um, So in the case of the Chainsmokers, Sony is their record label. There's a letter of direction where they... Send the one like one percent of the royalties to the to the album. Have a royalty account associated with our company, and then we actually distribute them through a disbursement smart contract to all the token holders. That's like one way things go. Um, in most cases today, royal administers the payouts, so we convert the money from the origination source, i.e., all the you know Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Music. Um, we're we're in accounts receivable on the song for a lot of these artists. And then we take that money, distribute it to a, a contract, a, a smart contract that now distributes the money to all the people who hold the tokens associated. We also have to send out to- tax documentation. Um, so if you were an investor in Royal last year, you got a 1099. If you had more than $6, I think is the threshold of royalty payouts. Um, so it's all pretty compliant and and tied up neatly, but it does vary artist artist by artist. Um, one thing we're excited about is, is ideally giving an artist the ability to control the full stack and do everything through us to make it easier um, because there have been a couple of accounting mishaps that are inevitable, right? Like this stuff happens. So um, controlling it is, is, is really important to us.
1: We are just about out of time. Is there, could you answer something in 30 seconds or less? I could try. <laughs> I think this would be a nice way to tie things up. What are the ways that you see royal or Web three related to DJing? <laughs>
0: um, I, there's some natural excitement about electronic musicians and their interest in like cryptography and crypto, and we're naturally gra- we naturally gravitate towards electronic innovation. I think, um, and you know, I think the most exciting thing for me in the five seconds we have left is you know, integrating ownership in live performances and, and giving people ownership in new creative ways that don't necessarily require them to buy something, but just, like, if you're a loyal fan, if you're at my shows, you're a loyal, loyal Blau fan, like, you, I think you should own 5% of all the music I release into the future. Something like that is really exciting.
1: Amazing. Thank you so much again, Justin, for taking the time, sharing your insights. This is really wonderful.
0: And shout-out to the Royal team sitting up front. Our headquarters are literally right down the street. Our office is here in Austin. So don't be shy and uh, check it out.
1: Thank you again.